Well, my friends, we're continuing on in our sermon series on the book of Isaiah. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's utterly in his hands. You and I, the only thing we bring is our need, right? The Lord brings everything else. Today we look at a topic, trusting God for life. It's from Isaiah chapter 28. I'm not going to begin by reading it. We're just going to I'm going to introduce the topic and then we will go piece by piece as we move through the chapter. Um, but I encourage you to have your Bibles open. If you didn't bring one, I encourage you to bring one. We use the ESV, English Standard Version, where we have a pew Bible, page 588. There's a song that's been getting a bit of airplay lately. Maybe you've heard it. Maybe you don't listen to the same Sirius XM channels that I do. But uh, it's by a band called Death Cab for Cutie, and it's titled... Here. <laughs> yes, there's a band called Death Cab for Cutie. It's a band. Uh, and, and they really are amazing musicians, and they got a new song. It's titled, Here to Forever. And midway through the song, they sing these lyrics. I'm not going to sing them. Perhaps you know the song, though. Listen closely. Oh, these days, it's so hard to relax. You got to hold a gun to my back to make me smile, to make me smile. And the only way I seem to cope is by trying to hold on to hope, if just for a while, if just for a while. And here's the chorus. And I want to know the measure from here to forever. And I want to feel the pressure of God or whatever. And here we go. Now it seems more than ever, there's no hands on the levers. And I want to feel the pressure of God or whatever. Now it seems more than ever, there's no hands on the levers. As a former skeptic who lived with this worldview of there being no God whose hands were on the levers, I have deep sympathy for the skeptic. I get it. I understand where they're coming from. But understand this. This is a message for the church. It's not just skeptics who look at the world we live in and conclude it seems there's no hands on the levers. For as long as there has been a people of God, there has been a people who doubt and wonder, right? God told Abraham and Sarah that they would have an heir, but time went by, and still no baby. So they took the levers into their own hands, and Abraham slept with a maid and bore Ishmael, a problem child, not the child of promise. And you and I can do the same. Isaiah knows that trusting God is not easy. He also knows, listen, that all of life hinges upon whether we trust God or not. Think of all the things in life that are not easy. So we just say no. Good things that maybe we'd like to do, but they're just too hard. As little kids, we grow up wanting to be astronauts or professional athletes or famous musicians. But it's not easy, so we opt out. We make a New Year's resolution to hit the gym three days a week and drop 20 pounds, but it's not easy. So by mid-February, we've opted out. There are many hard things in life, right? Think of them, in which you opt out. But listen, trusting God must not be one of them. In chapter 28 before us, God speaks to us, and he says, trust me. And why should we trust God? 
Because, writes Isaiah, God alone is worthy of our trust. In a world in which it seems like there's no hands on the levers, God is ruling in glory. So Isaiah calls us to trust God. That's the big idea from the text. And so it's the main proposition of this sermon. Because God alone is worthy, we must completely trust our lives to him. Let's pray. Father, you are worthy. Um, for those of us who've been Christians a while, we, we know this in our head. And yet we can find ourselves struggling with the hardships around us. Uh, I think of Frank Krzyzewski right now and Peter Christensen, um, those who are grieving the loss of Barbara Albright. So many things in our lives, they seem to come in waves. Um, but your hands are on the levers. And by these words of Isaiah, we ask that you would work in us wherever we're at to bring us to a closer understanding of this truth and a love for this truth and a love for you, we pray. Amen. Well, three points. First is this. Because all other glories are false and fading, we must completely trust God with our lives. Isaiah challenges us to consider what makes us feel important. What makes you feel important? What glory captures your attention? In verses 1 through 6, this is where we get to look at our Bibles, the word crown appears three times. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4 first. Ah, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley of those overcome with wine. Behold, the Lord has one who is mighty and strong, like a storm of hail, a destroying tempest, like a storm of mighty overflowing waters he cast down to the earth with his hand. The proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim will be trodden underfoot, and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley, will be like a, ripe, a first ripe fig before the summer, when someone sees it and swallows it as soon as it is in his hand. Isaiah has his eyes on part of the northern kingdom. Remember, early on in the kingdom, it was split into two um, after Solomon. Northern kingdom, southern kingdom. The northern kingdom, um, he has his eyes right now on one of the tribes, Ephraim, and its capital city, Samaria. That is what is referred to by the words, on the head of the rich valley. The capital city of Samaria is luxurious. It's the place everybody wants to be. Everybody longs to be enjoying the glorious beauty there. Sounds a lot like the Hamptons to me. It's luxurious and everybody longs to be here enjoying its beauty. But like Isaiah says of the city of Samaria, it is but a fading flower of its glorious beauty, or at least it will be one day. Ray Orland Jr. writes, the very privileges that made Ephraim great, the people turned into a drunken binge. Remember the last sermon, how God promised his people a royal feast of splendor on that day to come, which will thoroughly satisfy us. You remember that? But here we see the world offers, it, it offers a substitute feast that only leaves one hungover and calling in sick. And in verse 4, Isaiah uses the illustration. It's amazing. He's an amazing writer. Um, he's above Shakespeare, in my opinion. The, the illustration of a person grabbing the first ripe fig from a fig tree 
And before he has given it much thought, it's no sooner seen than it's eaten. Alex Montier writes, it's as if the person is hardly aware of what he's done. Is this not how people live on earth? People live on earth with a smash and grab mentality. You're familiar with the, with the smash and grab approach that thieves use these days. They rush into a jewelry store with a baseball bat and they smash the glass and they grab everything in sight and they flee. When your life is not lived in trust for God, you will smash and grab every fig-like opportunity to consume something you think will lead you to your crown of glory, but it's in the mouth and soon forgotten. But when you can trust God, when you trust him to control the levers of this world, then you won't experience fear of missing out. You won't live with impulsive whims controlling your life. Does this make sense? So what does it look like for those who trust in God? Isaiah shows us in verses 5 and 6. First, I'm going to read verse 5. It shows us that there's a crown of glory for us that does not fade. Verse 5. In that day, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people. Isaiah tells us that believers, we have a different crown. And it's not a thing, it's a person. It's the Lord of hosts who is our crown of glory. Isaiah says he will be a crown for his remnant people. And verse 6 describes what having Jesus as your crown of glory looks like in our daily lives. It means God's spirit is in us to promote righteousness and justice into this world and to give us strength for the battle because it is a battle to live for Christ and his kingdom in this world right now. Verse 6. And a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment and strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. That's us. Because of all the injustice and unrighteousness in this world, it seems like there is no God above with a firm grip on the levers. And so by faith, we fight the urge to what? To grab the levers back from God. Those who trust God must live by faith in a world full of injustice, knowing that the Lord will one day make things perfectly right. And so by the Spirit of God in us, we fight for righteousness and we pursue justice to flourish. And as we fight, Isaiah says that this power of God comes upon us as we live to see Christ's victory on this earth. Verse 6 ends by saying that the Lord of hosts, who is our crown of glory, will what? Be a strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. Sometimes it feels like Christians that we're backed up to the gate. The last stronghold's there. There's, we fought for the turf and, and we've lost and we're, and we're fighting now for what last vestige there is. Um, this word says to us a word of encouragement that God gives us strength in this battle. What a remarkable image of the Christian life, right? As we battle for Christ in his kingdom, God's strength comes to us. The image is the faithful remnant of God's people on earth, standing shoulder to shoulder in like Lord of the Rings fashion, battling against the forces of evil on earth. Do you see your life that way? 
Isaiah says, the Lord will be your strength. Listen, God wants to be our great resource of strength. Listen, God wants to be our great resource of strength. Ortland makes this short but also true statement. He says, listen, God is the least exploited resource in this world. Sadly, it's true. God is the least exploited resource in this world. The one we treat as our last resort is the fountainhead of lasting glory. And he's saying to all of us today, let me prove it to you. Because all other glory is false and fading, we must completely trust our lives to God. Next, Isaiah shows us that because the offers of this world are misleading lies, we must completely trust trust our lives to God. So Isaiah began by looking at the prideful, sin-filled city of Samaria in the north. Now he turns to the southern kingdom, Judah. They lived completely separate lives. But what he shows us is that what is happening in Vegas isn't staying in Vegas. It's come to Judah too. They have fallen into a state of spiritual drunkenness. And so not even the conservatives in Judah, the priests and the prophets, look like the people of God. Verses 7 and 8. These also reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. The priests and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are swallowed by wine. They stagger with strong drink. They reel in vision. They stumble in giving judgment for all tables are full of filthy vomit with no space left. What's going on? Well, not even those who are entrusted with God's word, the priests, live with a gospel focus. Isaiah sees the priests and the prophets of his generation drunk on their own earthly wisdom. is puked up on the table. Their trendy philosophies they're puked up, and there's no space left. What's wrong? How did the people of God come to be this way? Isaiah says it's because the word of God has been forsaken. And this has terrible consequences. God wants to speak to us, but will we listen? Look at verses 9 and 10. The priest and the prophet, they mock Isaiah's message for being too childish, too simplistic. Verse 9 to whom will he teach knowledge? He here is Isaiah. And to whom will he explain the message? Those who are weaned from the milk, those who are taken from the breast, just babies. That's all he speaks to. For it is precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. They mock the gospel message for being too simple. But the gospel message is simple. Think about it. If the words that save us are so complex that only the elite can discern them, then only the elite on this earth can be saved. But the elite look down on simple messages. Maybe that's you today. You mock the gospel because it's just too simple. It simply says you're a sinner, but God will forgive you and give you new life and everlasting life through his son, Jesus Christ. That's just too simple. Do you stumble over the simple words of salvation, the simple words to 
Trust God. It's that simple. The people in Isaiah's day stumbled upon and um, mocked the word of God. So God speaks to defend his word in verses 11 through 13. There we go. For by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people to whom he has said. God has said this gracious word. This is rest. This is God speaking to his people. Give rest to the weary. And this is repose. Yet they would not hear. So what will happen? And the word of the Lord will be to them, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they may go, listen, and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. There's a lot in the line when we say no to the word of God. Ortland makes this simple observation of what this looks like. Listen, he says, what Isaiah is saying is real. One person is sitting in a pew, hearing the gospel and thinking, I never knew the Bible had so much to say to me. This is so meaningful. I can't wait until next Sunday. While the very next person in the pew is thinking, this is dumb. Why doesn't the Bible say something impressive, something up to my level? Same message, different impact. So which person are you here today in the pew? God has a simple message, trust me, to provide the rest for your weary soul. That's the message of the Old Testament and the New. Jesus said in Matthew 11, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am what? Gentle and lowly in heart. That's convicting me this week. Am I gentle and lowly heart? Well, at least my Savior is. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Jesus offers you rest for your souls. But are you too clever for your own good? Or are you perhaps too prideful? For to come to Jesus means rest for your soul, but it means you must stop trying to control the levers and yield them to Christ. So do you trust yourself or do you trust Christ? It's such a simple message. And so much hangs on your response. Trust me, trust me, says God. So simple. So hard. Isaiah wants us to understand that to give ourselves in trust to anything other than God does not lead to a refuge of life and peace, but what he calls a refuge of lies. Verses 14 and 15 and then skipping to 17. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem, because you have said, we have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we have made an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come upon us, for we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we have taken shelter. And I will make justice the line, and righteousness the plumb line, and hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and water will overwhelm the shelter. God wants his people to understand the sad unreality of trusting in anything or anyone other than him. God is calling us here to surrender our control to him, to let him have the control levers of your life. 
See, when you control the levers apart from God and his word, you will find in the end that you are swept away by the refuge of lies. And of course, think this through. A refuge of lies is no refuge at all. It's a scary place to find oneself later in life or for all eternity. But God is gracious to us. He knows, understand, he knows how fickle our affections are for him. He knows the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So he gives us a sure foundation upon which to rest our hasty souls. Verse 16, God interjects here a great promise of grace in the midst of all this. He says, therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion. That's another name for Jerusalem. A stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. Isaiah still has in mind this, the city of God that we looked at in the last sermon, right? Remember, this is one big letter, one big book. He hasn't had two weeks off. <laughs> And he shows us that this city of God has a sure foundation. And this foundation that Isaiah foretells has come true now in Jesus Christ. Jesus saw himself as the cornerstone rock of the foundation of God's people and of his kingdom. The Matthew, Matthew um, Jesus' disciple, says these words, actually it's Jesus' words in chapter 21. Jesus said to them, this is to the religious leaders who rejected Jesus, just like back in Isaiah's day. Have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus, the great, tested, precious cornerstone. So many have rejected him, but to us who call him Lord, he's marvelous in our sight. Whoever believes in him will not be in haste. They will not live, they will live set free from the smash and grab life that Isaiah speaks of in the next verses, verses 18 through 22. Then your covenant with death will be annulled and your agreement with Sheol will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, you will be beaten down by it. As often as it passes through, it will take you. For morning by morning it will pass through, for day by day. For by, by day and by night. And it will be sheer terror to understand the message. And this is great. For the bed is too short to stretch oneself on. And the covering too narrow to wrap oneself in. Isaiah says that the life without God at the control levers of your life, will not, you will not be living a... a in a refuge of peace, but of lies. And, and the picture that Isaiah gives is, is like what it's like to sleep on a, on a bed with your feet hanging off and your blanket way too small to cover you. What an image, right? Such is life apart from trusting God. But you may say, life's challenges are way too big. The forces against me appear to be too big. I had a woman say to me this week, because the anguish has been going on for so long, that she's afraid she might just give up, might not have enough faith to press on. 
the forces against us can appear too much. So Isaiah reminds his readers of the two well-known battles in the past. Sometimes it's just good to look back at how God has worked in your life in the past, right? Delivered you out of hardship, shown himself faithful in the midst of difficult circumstances. And that's what Isaiah does. Verses 21 and 22. For the Lord will rise up as on Mount Perizim. Okay, we have no idea what that is today. Uh, as in the Valley of Gibeon. Where's that? Okay. Uh, he will be roused to do his deed. Strange is his deed. And to work his work. Alien is his work. At Mount Perizim and in the Valley of Gibeon, enemies loomed too large for the people of God. But the victory came to, because, God's, because God was with his people. And so says Isaiah in verse 22. Now therefore do not scoff, lest your bonds be made strong. For I have heard a decree of destruction from the Lord of hosts against the, whole land, against the whole land. This makes sense, right? Those who scoff at God's words will find that the shackles of their doubt become stronger bonds. It goes from string to rope to zip ties to chains. The, longer, the more you live life scoffing at God, the more your disbelief will build. Does that make sense? Listen, God wants us to have a better life. A life with him at the levers. A life of trust despite the odds. A life of righteousness in a world gone Vegas. God wants us to have a better life. The problem isn't God, it's us. <laughs> but thankfully, God triumphs over our failures in his grace. So we've seen that because all other glory is false and fading and because the offers of this world are misleading lies, we must completely come to trust God. Lastly, because discouragement from this world becomes encouragement from God, we must completely trust our lives to God. The big idea here is this. It's as if God is saying something like this to us. What frustrates me, uh, what frustrates you, doesn't frustrate me. So lean on me and you will see. In other words, trust me. In the final words of chapter 28, Isaiah here speaks more like Solomon in the book of Proverbs. Isaiah wants us to observe a humble farmer. And he wants us to understand two important observations that will help us to trust in God. First, just as a farmer has to plow the soil in the spring. We live out in a farming community. We see that, right? And when you do this, it's a lot of work. It turns up the soil. So too, God's people will go through seasons where we feel like we're being plowed up and turned over, right? Isaiah's point is that if the simple farmer knows this, and if we know this, then surely God, the one in whom we trust, the one who has the levers of, his, of our lives in his hands, surely God knows. We read this in verses 23 through 26. All right, give ear and hear my voice. Give attention and hear my speech. Does he who plows for sowing plow continually? No, eventually they gotta throw seed in the ground. Does he continually open and harrow his ground all year long? No. 
When he has leveled its surface, does he not scatter dill and sow cumin and put wheat into rows and barley in his proper place and emmer as the border? For he is rightly instructed as God teaches him. For the farmer, the upheaval of the soil is temporary. It's a necessary good. It has a good purpose, that of the soil being made ready for seeds to be planting so that then later there can be a harvest to come. My friends, God in whom we trust is right and good to use hardships in our lives to break up the hard and rocky soil of our souls. It doesn't feel, doesn't feel good at the time. That's what the writer to the Hebrews said in chapter 11, or 12 rather. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. That is what Isaiah is telling us here. God plows. He plows up our lives. And we become receptive to his seed, which is the word of God. And it takes root in us. And it actually produces fruit that is pleasing to God and to us. Now, every one of you knows this, right? This isn't like the first time you've heard that, right? You know this. You know this is how God works in our lives. The question, though, is do we trust God with the levers of life when this is happening? Or do we take back the levers and come up with our own plan? The second observation of the farmer is that he knows how to process each of these crops differently. They're different crops. What does this mean for us, though? First, the text. Verse 27 to 29. This is the end of the chapter. Dill is not threshed with a threshing sledge. Did you guys know that? I did not know that. Um, Nor is a cartwheel rolled over cumin. Okay, take that to heart. But dill is beaten out with a stick. There you go. And cumin with a rod. I didn't know any of this. Does one crush grain for bread? Do you actually crush it? No. He does not thresh it forever. When he drives his cartwheel over it with his horses, he does not crush it. This also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful, listen, in counsel, and excellent in wisdom. That's who this word's coming from. The important question, though, is what does this word mean? What is God saying here through Isaiah? Well, it's this. Just as the farmer is wise to know that dill and cumin and wheat are all processed differently, so too God is wise to know how each and every one of his children are different and require different attention. Dr. James uh, Dobson wrote an important book years ago. I recommend it to new parents. Some of you have this book. (laughs) Uh, We feel for you because it's titled The Strong-Willed Child. (laughs) Some children, usually boys, are strong-willed. And so, as Dobson teaches, special tactics are required to raise a strong-willed child. But not so if your other child is a soft-willed child. If you use strong-willed tactics with a soft-willed child, you risk hardening their already soft heart. As a parent, 
it's sad to say, I've learned this too late. Now, where we fail, God never does. He knows how each one of us is wired. Sorry, they say in seminary not to cry. We went to the same place. <laughs> God knows how each one of us is wired. When God brings us into this refining fire, this turning over the soil, we don't like it. But one thing we can know for sure, because of what Isaiah says here, is that the temperature is never too hot or too cold, nor the duration too long or too short. It's just right for you. Now, why do you think Isaiah ends this chapter on, on trusting God with these insights. Why? Because Isaiah wants us to trust God with whatever plows up our lives. Whatever tempts us to think. Now it seems more than ever there's no hands on the levers. And he wants us to believe that God isn't overdoing it. He picked the wrong person. Should have been my sibling. Or my spouse, why me? Something must be wrong. No. Isaiah wants us to live with faithful hope for the harvest of righteousness that is to come. Does this make sense? So this morning we've seen that because God alone is worthy, we must completely trust our lives to him because all other glory is false and fading, and because the offers of this world are misleading lies, and because discouragement from the world becomes encouragement from God, we must completely entrust our lives to him. Remember the story of how Abraham rescued Lot and his whole family from the city of Sodom. Lot's wife, think this through, she was in the very process, she was leaving the city, in the very process of being saved by God. She was walking away from the city. God said, trust me, obey me, I will save you. Don't look back. Don't look back in sadness at what God is calling you to leave behind. Don't look back wondering if that life is gone for good or if perhaps one day you could go back and salvage things if this trust God thing doesn't work out. Christian, know this. You are not Lot's wife. You can press on in faith and not look back because your Lord has pressed on in faith for you and did not look back and he is your source of strength and power. 
Hebrews 11.2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was before set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Christian, God's playbook for our life really is simple. Trust God and look to Jesus and yield the levers of your life to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Isaiah's life. We praise you for his words that are your words to us. We thank you that you are a God who wants us to trust you. You welcome us to trust you. And you, you provide an open door of welcome into your life. And we, we at times don't trust you. So much of coming to worship service every Sunday is just being reminded of what we already know is true and having it pressed just a little bit deeper. We pray for that work today, that we may live our lives, at least for this week, with you on the levers, we pray. Amen.